Well, I hope you guys had a, a Merry Christmas uh, with your family and friends and loved ones and kids. I want you to know that I am thankful that you're in here today. And uh, we don't have junior church today, but I want you to know that you're an important part of our church family and that you are not just the future church, but you're the church now. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm thankful. I remember as a kid what an impact it had on me. We had pews when I grew up, but we, we, uh, we sitting in the pews week by week and listening to the old men next to me sing worship songs to Jesus and open the Bible and, and uh, it has an impact on you and we want to pass that on to future generations and so I'm thankful that we can be together today. Um, at our Christmas Eve service, we looked through one of the accounts of Jesus' birth. It's the account that Luke gives in uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. And, and as I studied that, I saw, man, there's way too much. Man, this deserves like six-week sermon series, but we can't do that right now. But I did want to dive into it more today since, since we were kind of already in it. And what I want to do is I want to look at three main things in this passage. Uh, first of all, I want us to see some clues in the passage that tell us that this is reliable historically, that this is a historically reliable account, okay? Uh, the second thing I want to do is, is look in the passage to see what it says about why Jesus is one of a kind, because it definitely says that. Why is Jesus one of a kind during, uh, through, according to this passage? And then thirdly, I want to see what this passage says Jesus can give us that nobody else can, and that nothing else can, okay? So if you got your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. And this passage that we're looking at actually only covers part of Jesus' birth story. Uh, if you're not familiar with it or if you want to brush up on it, this is a great uh, time of year to do that. So you can read uh, in your own time Luke chapter 1 and 2, as well as all of, of Matthew chapter 1. Um, so we open the, read, uh, the word. Let's ask God to, to help us now. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, for your human birth. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, for, for showing us you, um, for showing us your glory, uh, for showing us who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for showing us who we are in the scripture, God. Thank you for showing us our great need for you. And uh, thanks for not letting us just stay out on the fringes. Uh, thanks for not abandoning us, but thank you for pursuing us. Please use your word now to uh, help us see you more clearly. Please use your word to transform us into your likeness. And Lord, help us to experience more of you, more of your freedom, more of your life, more uh, of your friendship that we might worship you the way you deserve to be worshiped and, and uh, honor you in our lives and, and love you and love others. Thank you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. I'm going to go ahead and read it. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, 
because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, watching, uh, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. I imagine many of us have read this passage many times, and kind of like Brian was saying, when we read, sing Christmas carols, we're really familiar with it. And so we want to be careful not to let our hearts kind of be hard. <laughs> we want to say, God, um, would you please use this word to shape me? Um, help me to know that I haven't mined this passage for, for everything that it can teach me. Help me to see in new ways how I can worship you through what you're showing me today. When we read a passage like this, uh, which records a number of miraculous events, we must not follow the popular trend of viewing the Bible as something that is questionably true or partially true or mostly true. See, even though there's a lot in the Bible that we just can't understand on this side of heaven, we, we need to see that it really is true. We need to be convinced of that. That needs to be a conviction of ours, that the Bible is completely true. Because God says his word is true. If we don't believe that, we don't believe God is telling the truth. We're not believing God. And so I want to begin by pointing out six clues in this passage that tell us that this is a historically reliable account of Jesus' birth. And there's probably more clues in there, but I'm not going to make a whole sermon about that. So first, I want you to notice that right off the bat, Luke connects his account with real political leaders who were in office at the time. 
Okay. In verse 1, Caesar Augustus issues the census. And in verse 2, Quirinius is identified as the governor of Syria. And so these are not imaginary political leaders. They are key leaders in history who were in power at the time of Jesus' birth. Caesar Augustus was the founder of the Roman Empire. It had been a republic before that. He was the founder of the empire. He lived between 63 B.C. and 14 A.D., which puts him right in power at the time when Jesus was born. Quirinius was a Roman politician who lived between 51 B.C. and 21 A.D., which puts him in power right when Jesus was born. So Luke's not creating imaginary characters just because you and I haven't heard of them, okay? These are actually the exact names of the politicians in office at the time and he says this so that we can verify his account with other historical records. Now second, uh, just because an ancient writer mentions real people in his writing doesn't necessarily mean he's telling the truth, right? But I want you to see, secondly, that Luke corresponds his account with an important, verifiable historical event, the Roman census, okay? The census of the Roman Empire. There are several accounts in the Bible and outside of the Bible about Roman censuses taking place around the time of Jesus' birth for different purposes. So it's, it's, it's very possible the purpose of this census was to tax people. Um, go figure. Um, to tax everybody in the Roman Empire. And so if Luke, now think about this, if Luke created this story in his head, he never would have written that Joseph and Mary participated in the census because all anybody had to do was check to see if Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem when Luke said he was. See, they just had to go, go to the, Rome, the Roman government and say, can, can we see this or check your records? Were Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem when they said they were? See, Luke's telling the truth. He welcomes anybody to verify his account with the Roman Empire. He's not afraid of that. The third proof of the passage's historical reliability is how Luke intentionally includes a number of specific places and regions. Uh, he mentions Syria, Galilee, Nazareth, and Bethlehem. So he's not writing this fairy tale that's staged in a land nobody's ever been to. Okay, this isn't The Hobbit. Uh, instead, he actually lists the specific towns where these people lived and traveled to. Now, this isn't interesting. Nazareth wasn't a big town. Okay, it wasn't like going to Everett or Seattle. If somebody wanted to see if Luke was telling the truth, you just went to this small town of Nazareth, knocked on the doors and said, Have, do you know this man from Nazareth, Joseph the carpenter, and his wife, or his, his girlfriend, his fiancee, Mary, who's pregnant out of wedlock but says that it's God. Okay, in a small town, we know this, people know about that, okay? The citizens of Nazareth would have known all about them. And Luke's obviously not worried about anybody double-checking his story because he's just reporting the facts. He's not making this up. Now, this is interesting. That being said, there's one small detail in Luke's account that at first looks like it could be a mistake. Uh, verse 4 says that Joseph went from Nazareth up to Bethlehem. Okay, it says he went from Nazareth up to Bethlehem. If you look at the map, it's really obvious. Nazareth, Nazareth is far in the north. Bethlehem is far to the south. 
How could anybody start in Nazareth and go up to Bethlehem? Sure looks like a flaw in Luke's account. But in actuality, this is a sweet little detail that is the fourth proof that Luke's account is actually really historically reliable. See, Nazareth is located at about 1,200 feet above sea level. And Bethlehem is located in the Judean mountains at about 2,500 feet above sea level. So when Mary and Joseph traveled up to Bethlehem, they were literally traveling up in elevation, up into the mountains, about 1,300 feet. So I love it because people who don't take the time to study the Bible might say, oh, it's a flaw, they don't, you know, it's, it's, it's messed up. Well, no, actually, um, he was there, <laughs> and he's reporting the facts. that This tiniest detail that he includes about going up to Nazareth is a further evidence that this is an entirely trustworthy and truthful story, historical account. The fifth historical proof that Luke includes here is Joseph's genealogy, um, which was very significant in the Jewish culture, your genealogy. In verse 4, Luke says that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Now to see Joseph's full, fuller genealogy, you can look at the first chapter of Matthew, which traces his lineage, his relatives, uh, back to David and then back to Abraham. This genealogy is important because numerous prophecies had been written hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, which prophesied that the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem, the town of David, and that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. He would be in David's family line. And so any Jewish person who read Luke's gospel in that first century or who heard Luke's gospel read aloud would be able, would have the genealogy memorized and would be able to confirm, yeah, Joseph's family lineage is on the up and up. It is. Jesus is without question. He is without question in the line of David. And the sixth historical detail I'll point out here is the simple fact that the angels announced the birth of Jesus to shepherds. If you were creating a fictional story, you would not have the angels appear to shepherds, okay? Shepherds were not very respected in the first century. The shepherds were probably poor. They were on the fringes of society. They, uh, they hung out with animals 24 hours a day, okay? This is what they did, and their testimonies really would not have been valued in a court of law. So from a human perspective, it would have made much more sense for the angels to appear to the emperor, right? Or to the governor, or to one of the Jewish Pharisees. So why does Luke write that this angel and a heavenly host appeared to shepherds? Because that's what happened. <laughs> that's what happens. He's not making the story up. He's just reporting the facts. So those are six clues in the passage that Luke's account is true and historically reliable. I think there are a couple others, but... but uh, that's all we're going to look at right now. That's kind of the first of three sections of the message today. And the reason we spent time doing this, we don't do it of every passage, but the reason we spent time doing this is because it is important for you and me to know that the Bible is totally true. Especially in a culture that really no longer knows the Bible. And in a culture that doesn't really believe it's true. And while I think it is important to point out these things and why the Bible is trustworthy. It's also really important in this empirical, scientific age 
to remember that we humans do not stand in authority over God and his word. God stands in authority over us, okay? We answer to him. He doesn't answer to us. And ultimately, the Bible is totally true and priceless because God says it is. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The NIV version says, All of your words are true. So the Lord says his, his word is true because he is truth. And so we believe God and we believe his word. Okay, next, let's see how the story of Jesus' birth declares that, that Jesus is one of a kind. It's totally unique. I, I imagine that uh, if I ask the moms in this room to share the stories of how their children were born, we could hear some real gems. Um, but uh, to be honest, I don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> Because that's, that's TMI for me. That's too much information. You can do that at your baby showers and all that stuff. Um, and freak out <laughs> the new mom. Um, according to, the, to the, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau I read this week, there are approximately 361,000 babies born in the world every day. That's a lot. 361,000 every day. And... Each of those birth stories is unique and special and is a miracle. But I guarantee you this, that nobody's birth story can top Jesus' birth story. Uh, Jesus' birth was one of a kind because Jesus is one of a kind. So let's start uh, by looking at his parents. Let's start with Jesus' dad, who really was his adoptive dad, Joseph. The Bible says that Joseph was a good man, and he was a carpenter who lived in this small town called Nazareth, and he was a descendant of King David. Remember, uh, like we already mentioned, that's significant because it confirms what the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied. Then let's turn to his mom, Mary. The Bible says that Jesus' mom, Mary, was a good woman. Mary was a pure woman. She'd never been with any man, uh, yet growing in her stomach was the Lord in human flesh. Now, obviously, we know that's impossible, right? That's an impossibility according to the rules of the natural world. Nobody's arguing that. But since when did God have to fit into the rules of the natural world? Why would God be restrained by the very rules that he created? If the Lord is who he says he is in scripture, if he is the creator of the rules, if he's the creator of every visible and invisible creation in the known universe and in the unknown universe, the one who made everything out of nothing, then, man, housing himself inside a woman's stomach, that's child's play. <laughs> it really, really, for God, it's, it's easy and the fact that Mary was a virgin both at the time of Jesus' conception and at the time of Jesus' birth shouts loudly that this is not a normal situation, okay? And Jesus is not a normal baby. This was the miracle of all miracles happening here. And this passage says that this newborn infant Jesus, he is the one who actually sovereignly orchestrated all the circumstances around his own birth. The angel that appears to the shepherds declares to them that the baby Jesus is the Lord. 
And in the same passage, we read that the angels belong to the Lord and that the angels are accompanied by the glory of the Lord, the glory of this baby that freaks out grown men. And then the shepherds verify that it is the Lord who made Jesus' birth known to them. And so as part of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, this baby Jesus is miraculously above and behind all of the natural and supernatural elements of his birth. And this is different from you and me, right? My kids didn't pick who their parents would be. <laughs> Your kids didn't pick where they would be born or when they would be born. You and I didn't pick how we would announce our birth to the world, right? We didn't have angels show up to a lot of different people and announce our birth to the world. But Jesus' sovereignty over all of this demonstrates he really is one of a kind. He really is God. And then another way this passage shows us that Jesus is totally one of a kind is, is by attributing to him some very unique titles and names. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord declares to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then in verse 21, Luke writes, and at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So here Jesus is given two titles, Savior and Christ, and he's given two names, the Lord and Jesus. And each of these words have a special, unique meaning. Jesus is the Savior because he is the one who came to save his people from their sin and from their eternal consequences of sin. Jesus is the Christ, because, which means the Messiah. He is the Messiah, the chosen one who came to free the Jewish people from their oppression. And the Jews were hoping that that would be freedom from a political oppression, but Jesus, the Christ, came to save them from a, an oppression Far greater than a political oppression, he came to free them from the oppression of their souls. He came to free them. Jesus is the Lord because he's God. He, that's the proper name of God. He is God the Son. He's the second member of the Trinity through whom all things were made and through whom all things currently, right now, actively hold together. And Jesus is called Jesus because his name means the Lord saves which fits him perfectly. John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. As only the Lord could, Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, completely fulfilling his own law. And as this perfect person, this perfect lamb of God, Jesus offered himself on the altar as an atoning sacrifice for our sin so that whoever trusts in him will not suffer what he suffered, will not suffer eternal death, but will enjoy eternal life. And as only the Lord could do, Jesus defeated sin then, and he rose again from the grave as our conqueror, as our victorious Lord. And so because of his grace alone, Jesus saves everybody who trusts in him. Amen?
That's great news. So if Jesus has saved you from eternal death, if he's given you eternal life and friendship with him right now that starts now in this life and goes into eternity, then celebrate that and celebrate him today. That's the best Christmas present you got. And, and read his word, which is a gift, and seek to obey him with your life as you celebrate the fact that as you seek to obey him, he has already perfectly obeyed for you. So you don't have to obey him out of fear of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We celebrate that Jesus already perfectly obeyed for us, and he's the person we want to be like. Because we want to love him and worship him with our lives. And if you're here today and maybe you haven't trusted in Jesus for your salvation, or maybe you have a long time ago, and you're just not sure what you believe about all this anymore, I am so thankful you're here. And all I can say is I would seek the Lord, read this Bible, and ask God to show himself to you. Um, do you, if you're here today, believe that he is God? And at what point do you, see this is the funny thing. Okay, I'm going off the, the notes here, so I gotta be careful. <clears throat> Everybody puts their faith in something. Everybody. If you're not believing in God, what you're believing in is that you're made up of dust particles that randomly came together and that there's no created being overseeing any of the process. That's what you're, you have to believe that, right? That is your hope for this life and your hope after this life. Have you ever seen a miracle? Have you ever seen anything that couldn't be explained by the scientific world? As a pastor, I, I see it all the time. You see kids who go have near, like, <laughs> I remember a teenager a few years ago who um, basically had alcohol poisoning drank himself to the point of death, and went to, the, went to the hospital and saw him, and God spared his life. And all the doctors could say is, there is no natural reason why this kid is still alive. If you want to know if there's miracles, maybe stop talking to your university professors and go talk to some doctors. <laughs> Sorry, but it's true. I mean, there's stuff, there's so much stuff in this world we cannot explain. There's so much. And I remember, man, just for me, it hit me. There have been times when I've tried to convince myself God wasn't real just to see if I could do it. But I didn't make it very far. Um, for me, it was just, if you've ever seen a child born or seen a newborn baby, you know it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense according to the rules of the natural world. What this is a designed, intricately designed creation that a second ago was breathing water and now outside of the body, it's not breathing water, but if I put it right back in, it would die because it can't breathe water anymore. This, this is an in incredible design. And, and so anyways, I, I just throw that out there to you because um, It's important that we really wrestle with this stuff, especially if our eternal souls really are on the line, that if this life really isn't the end of our existence, then it would be foolish not to look deeply into the things of eternal matters.
Um, and one of Satan's greatest lies is for us to believe he doesn't exist and that this life is all that there is. But as I look around, I see a room full of miracles that any of us are alive and that any of us actually love God. <laughs> doesn't make sense to the natural world. Um, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, ask the Lord today to show himself to you and do your part of seeking him. Um, and let somebody here know. I was so excited. I've talked to two people in the past week who want to get baptized, which is awesome. Praise God. So we're going to have a, our first baptism in this room, which I'm excited about. And we want to celebrate with them what Christ has done in their life as they publicly declare that, man, Jesus saved me. And I want to be part of this church family. And, and I want to live in community with you guys until I die or Jesus comes and gets us. Is that exciting? Jesus' his birth story is one of a kind because Jesus is one of a kind. And so, so far we've looked at the historical clues uh, in Luke 2, 1 to 21. We talked a little bit about why Jesus is one of a kind. And now I want us to see four things this passage says that Jesus gives to us that nobody else can give. First, after the angel of the Lord tells the shepherds that Jesus had been born in a manger in Bethlehem, we read in verses 13 to 14, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then after the shepherds travel to Mary and tell her how the angel had appeared to them, we read in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And so, so Mary treasures and ponders these things in her heart, which, remember, comes after um, what happened when she first found out that Jesus would be born to her, where she sang a worship song to God. And when the shepherds leave Bethlehem, we read in verse 20, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So when we look and see what the angel's response was to the birth of the Lord and what Mary's response was to the birth of the Lord and what the shepherd's response was to the birth of the Lord, we see that Jesus obviously gives them something that nobody else can, which is true worship. True worship. Each of these creatures, human and angelic, are so awestruck by the presence and glory of their creator that their immediate response is to fall down and worship the Lord. To glorify the Lord, to praise the Lord. What an uncommon baby to create the same effect in so many people and angels. This baby was their God and they knew it. They knew it. Now, it's not necessarily unusual to worship something and to ascribe worth to something. That's what humans are really good at. We love to worship all sorts of things. We love to be affiliated with things that we worship. But just because you worship something doesn't mean that what you're worshiping is truly deserving of worship, right? You might be devoting all your time and energy and finances into something that is functioning as a God for you, but isn't really God. It's possible, very possible, to worship things that can't truly give you what you need for this life and for life after earth. Only when we worship 
the true God are we worshiping in truth? And so true worship is what Jesus gives to the people in this passage. They've seen him. They've touched the one true God of the universe, and they now worship him in this breathtaking new way. They've experienced who he is in his flesh, and their response is to adore him, to worship him. And because of Jesus, because he came, because he lived, because he died, because he rose again, you and I can now do this too. We can now worship God in spirit and in truth because Jesus came. And in addition to true worship, we see the second thing that only Jesus can give us uh, in verse 10. The angel appears to the shepherds, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The angel says that God gives us great joy. Jesus gives true joy, eternal joy, to all the peoples around the world who trust in him for salvation. Only God, this God who created you, can give us the joy of true freedom from guilt and from our addictions and from our bondage to sin. Only Jesus can give us the joy of receiving the righteousness of God. Who else can give you that joy? (laughs) Nobody. Only Jesus can give you that kind of joy. Only Jesus can give us the joy of, of knowing that God is living in my heart right now. Only Jesus can give us the joy of loving God and loving other people. Only Jesus can give us this true joy because of the hope that we have in the future grace that he promises to give us in all of his promises. And in addition to true worship and true joy, the angels tell us in verse 14 that in Jesus we have the Lord's peace and the Lord's approval in Jesus. The angels say in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay. I don't know about you, but I, I want peace in my life. And I want God's peace. I haven't found anything in the world that can give me everlasting supernatural peace. I haven't found, I found, I found things in this world that can give me short bursts of happiness. Right? I found things in this world that can help me escape from reality for a little bit. There's a lot of things in this world that can help numb me from my reality and from my pain for a little bit. But I have not found anything in this world, any person, any possession, any activity, any experience that promises to give me peace that lasts forever and will never leave me. The only thing I have found that can give me true everlasting peace is the Lord, Jesus, who's outside of the world. That's where he's from. He's from outside of the creation. But in order to have this peace of the Lord forever, verse 14 says that I must be a person with whom God is pleased. So I really want to be somebody with whom God is pleased. (laughs) How do I do that? How do you please God so much that you can be confident that you are his and that he will give you his peace? Well, um, we've watched a lot of Christmas movies in my house this past week, um, like Ernest Saves Christmas and a Disney Christmas Carol and Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas and Mickey's Twice Upon a Christmas. (laughs) 
Mickey's Magical Christmas, and on and on. And, and there was one scene in Mickey's Twice Upon a Christmas that really stuck out to me. Huey, Dewey, and Louie <coughs> are telling their Uncle Scrooge <coughs> about everything they want for Christmas. And Scrooge tells them that the one thing he always wanted, he never got because he could never be good enough to get onto Santa's good list. He was never able to please Santa Claus enough to get on his good list. And so the nephews ask him, <clears throat> well, you're rich. Why don't you just buy yourself onto the list? And Scrooge says, you cannot buy your way. I won't do my Scottish accent or whatever it is, your English accent. <clears throat> you cannot buy your way onto Santa's good list. It's simple. This is what he tells his nephews. If you don't clean up your act, you don't get on Santa's list. If you're not on the list, you don't get presents. And then Scrooge leaves the room, and one of the nephews looks at his brothers and says, well, we made the good list, right? And his brothers say, absolutely. We've been very good this year. And then they, you know, see one of these bubbles above their head, and they think back about all of the bad things that they've done over the past year. And they look at each other, and they frown and say, we're doomed. If you and I can't get onto Santa's good list by buying our way on or by being really good people, then how in the world can we ever hope to get onto God's good list? How can we ever be a person with whom God is pleased? Here's the answer, kids. God doesn't love you as his child because you've been a good little boy or little girl. God loves you because you trust in Jesus who was good enough for you, okay? You and I can never be good enough on our own to earn a place on Santa's or God's good list. The only person who's ever been good enough to be on God's list of his, of his family members is Jesus, his son, because he is God. So that means that you and I need Jesus to give to us the goodness that he has in himself. That's what we need. We need God to see the goodness that Jesus has, except he, we need to be credited with that goodness. And so in order to have that, in order to have God pleased with us, we pray to God and we say, God, I know I'm not good enough for you. And I'm sorry for my sins. And I do not want to keep sinning against you. But thank you for sending yourself, your son Jesus, who was perfectly good for me, who was perfect for me, who died on the cross to take away my sins, who died on the cross to give me his goodness, his righteousness. Thank you for giving Jesus who rose from the grave so that I could be friends with you, God. And so I trust in Jesus alone to make me right with you. And I can believe, God, fully that you are pleased with me because you've given me the goodness of Jesus now. Amen. See, because Jesus was born and because he lived perfectly for us, because he died as our substitute, we can now receive through faith the true approval of God and the true peace of God. 
Jesus is one of a kind. John says he's the one and only. Jesus' word is reliable and true, and Jesus gives us what nobody else can. True worship, true joy, the true peace of God, and the true approval of God. Praise the Lord. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word today, and thank you for being perfect for us, and then graciously crediting your perfection to us on the cross. We trust in you, God, uh, as we look at our lives and say, wow, I am not perfect. It, uh, it, uh, it, it, it hits home to see just how amazing you are for your perfection and for graciously offering to impute that to us. Lord, we, we celebrate uh, as we head into this new year that um, you have freed us from sin. We celebrate that we can pursue you and pursue holiness. And we celebrate that we can pursue holiness not out of fear or guilt or obligation, but out of an overwhelming joy that you give us, out of love that you put in our hearts, God, knowing full well that there's no way I could do enough to get on your good list. Jesus was perfect so that I could be on the list. Thank you for that, Father. And uh, may we pursue you and believe that we are loved by you and accepted by you in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name.